This morning, we're going to continue through our series through the book of Matthew. And we're going to continue uh, through the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 as we talk about the authority of the king, part 2. The authority of the king, part 2. But before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Father, I just want to thank you again for the privilege that we have to gather here as a church family. We don't take this privilege for granted, Lord, as many of our brothers and sisters all across the world don't have the opportunity to worship freely as we do. And so we come with gratitude this morning with the ability to lift high your name, Lord Jesus, to come to the well, to drink deeply from your streams of grace and to hear from you. And so I just pray now that you would you would speak to us, that your word as the scripture says it is, would be living and active this morning to um, lay bare the thoughts and intentions of the heart, to strengthen the weak and the feeble, to uh, convict the sinner, to uh, sanctify the saint, to make us, Lord, in who, into who you desire us to be. Help us, Lord, see how great your authority is this morning. Lord Jesus, help us believe in it, help us bank on it, and rest in it by faith, day by day, in the face of whatever life may bring us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. And uh, as you do, I want to share with you this uh, little anecdote. I guess it's a joke. <laughs> I don't tell many jokes, but here you go. <laughs> Here we go. An old lady returned home from a church service one Sunday to find an intruder in the process of ransacking her house. Stop, she yelled. Acts 2.38, which says repent. The burglar stopped dead in his tracks while the old lady called the police. As they handcuffed the burglar, the officer asked, how come you just stood there? All the old lady did was quote a Bible verse. A Bible verse, the thief replied, she said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, all right, it was all right. That wasn't too bad, was it? Well, if somebody had an axe and two thirty-eights, I'd probably stop in my tracks too. But the point of this little story is what? Well, an axe and two thirty-eights give you some authority in your house. They give you some say-so. They kind of give you the... You know, you kind of, you're in a position to kind of make some demands and make some claims that are worthy to be obeyed, if you know what I'm talking about. Well, it's a silly kind of illustration there, but the point is, is that Jesus doesn't need an axe and 238s. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He doesn't, he doesn't need a thing except his word. His power is inherent. It is glorious. It is unchallengeable. And that's what we're going to see as we continue through, through the rest of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 to reflect on the authority of Jesus as uh, Matthew wants to see it as he's writing to those who he uh, wants to help believe. And so we see Jesus' authority again in, in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. And our passage says, it says, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs, of many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The Word of God. So I want to look at Jesus' authority uh, in, three, in three of its aspects this morning. Number one is that Jesus reigns over nature. Jesus reigns over nature. Number two is that Jesus reigns over demons. Jesus reigns over demons. And then number three, Jesus reigns over sin. Jesus reigns over sin. And so first here we see that Jesus reigns over nature. We saw that in verses 23 through 27 about the story of Jesus and his disciples in the boat. As we continue this section on Matthew, we just remember here that Matthew's writing this book. He's a he's an apostle. He's, he's writing... Uh, probably primarily to a Jewish audience, and his desire is to help uh, people with a Jewish background see how Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the chosen promised one of God. And in this particular section, he's trying to get us to grasp Jesus's incomparable authority. Two weeks ago, we looked at a number of healings that Jesus performed, and we saw there that all Jesus had to do was to say the word. That's all he had to do was to say the word. And uh, people would be healed. Last week, we saw sandwiched between those healings and the miracles that we just read about. Uh, sandwiched in between these two, last week we talked about how Jesus' authority demands a response. That is that 
uh, it, it, everyone has to make a decision with regards to Christ. And you have to count the cost, and you have to realize that there's an urgency to the kingdom, that it's costly, but it's worth laying down everything else to follow him. That is that Jesus isn't after half-hearted followers. He wants people who have counted the cost and have found him worthy of laying down every other allegiance to follow him. And as we, and, and then as we uh, speak on our passage this morning, uh, Matthew just shares even more stories that emphasize to us the authority of Jesus. Particularly here, we see the authority of Jesus over nature. Now remember that Jesus, many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, right? That they, they, they spent their whole lives, as far as we know, on the Sea of Galilee. And, and you know, and it's, it's a, we call it Sea of Galilee. That's the traditional way of talking about it. But it's really, it's really just a, a, a large lake. And um, it's, it's, a real, it's a beautiful place. I, I hope you get the chance to go there one day. Um, and, uh, but, but the disciples have, have that's their, that was their livelihood. So they're, they're, not, they're not novice, uh, novices when it comes to working, working on the sea and being in a boat. Now, it's well known how in the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, that, that region is a very low, low elevation. So the, the, the surface of the lake, uh, of Lake Galilee, of Sea of Galilee, is actually below, is below sea level. And so it's, it's warm and, and humid, and, and so it's, it's well known of how the, because of the warm waters, the, 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 war, the warm air could rise at times, and that would cause the cool air to come rushing in underneath it. And these great storms, these great squalls, could kind of rise up almost out of nowhere. And um, and so these disciples, they're 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 on this boat, and they're in the midst of the the, the sea, and this huge tempest comes up. And you know the boat the boats weren't excessively large. You know they weren't super large. I mean, they, and so and so it's a relatively small boat, and these big waves are just coming up and crashing in. And and yeah, and again, remember, these people they they they've made their livelihoods of working on this same sea, and yet they're what? They're scared. In other words, what we hadn't? I, I worked my whole life on this sea, and I hadn't seen something like this. That tells you something of what this storm was like. And they have these huge waves that are crashing in over their little boat. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's sleeping. That kind of makes us scratch our head a little bit. Um, but they, they get scared and they wake Jesus up and they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. As we read this passage, I think something to point out is this, is that it seems to me that in, in the midst of this uh, passage here, Matthew wants us to see a contrast between Jesus' sleep and the disciples' frantic fear. Now, you know, we could just, we could just chalk up Jesus' sleep to his exhaustion, his physical exhaustion from the intense ministry that he was doing, and surely that was a large part of it. But I just want to suggest that maybe Jesus' sleep here points to, points to something else. Um, and that is that he, he can sleep in the midst of the storm because, 
because he knows who's in control of the storm. His peace, you know, his, his sleep is not just exhaustion, so it's ignorance of the storm. His sleep is, he's going to sleep despite the storm. Why? Because he's not worried about it. They're worried about the storm, but he's not because he knows who's in control of the storm. And yet the disciples can't quite understand this, and they wonder, how can Jesus be sleeping in a moment like this? And I just want to say that, uh, you know, we might not voice it, but I'm afraid that there may be some among us who, in the midst of the situation, a, a situation in life, or just the situation we find ourselves in general in the world today, we may find ourselves in the position of these disciples, and we look around at everything that's happening to us, and we look at Jesus, and we think, Jesus, wake up. Where are you? Where are you, Jesus? Why are you sleeping right now? But note here the implication. So just, just think about this. Note here the implication. When Jesus wake, when they wake Jesus up, what does he say to them? Why were you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. What does that mean? It must mean this. It must mean he expected them to trust him even while he was sleeping. You see that? He trust, He expected his disciples to trust him even while he was sleeping. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this. It means that Jesus can do more in his sleep than you can do wide awake, frantic in your fears. Jesus isn't worried. He's not afraid. And Jesus isn't asleep right now, but guess what? Even if he was, we'd still have no reason to fear. Because he can do more in his sleep than we can wide awake. Jesus was exercising his sovereign care for his disciples in his sleep. To the degree that he didn't even need to be woken up to deal with this storm. So we don't have to fear in this season. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of a virus. We don't have to fear violence and looting. We don't have to fear government abuse or corruption. We don't have to fear injustice, not because we might not experience those things. We very well may experience those things. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, don't be afraid because they won't experience storm. They were in the middle of a storm. He told them not to be afraid because they were to trust in him. We fear not, not because we won't go through things, but because Jesus is going to carry us through anything he calls us to endure. Jesus' sovereign authority and power and care and control upholds us through these things and ultimately works them even for our good. And so what does he do? He says, why were you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Now, you know, sometimes we're, we're pretty hard on the disciples but I think often in this case, we like to cut the disciples some slack. You know, we see ourselves in that boat. We see the waves crashing. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big boat guy. I'm not keen on getting on a boat and going way out. You know, just not too keen on it. If I was in the boat, if I was on a boat in the middle of nowhere, all I could see was water and there was a big storm coming. Let me tell you something, I wouldn't like it. Okay. But in the, despite all that, you know, these disciples come, and, and, and so we, we can relate. And we say, you know, Jesus, you know, 
that's a little harsh, you know? I mean, you, you know, they thought they were going to die. I mean, you just got to wake up and just rebuke them like that. But, you know, but let's just stop for a moment and, and maybe just ask the question, you know, what if, what if, what if it's not Jesus's expectations that are wrong, but it's ours? You see, the perspective makes all the difference. And in the end, it's not by our perspective, but by God's perspective that we will be judged. You see, and it can be very easy to excuse sin and unbelief because it feels understandable to us or normal to us. Or, or we, we would think, well, that's how most people would respond. You know, for example, it's easy for me to excuse sin. For example, if I'm sinned against, it's easy for me to want to get some payback, right? And, and then other people... Who, who are aware of the situation might even say, yeah, you're right. You need to get them back for what they did to you. Because why? Because it's understandable to them. But just because it's understandable, don't make it right. And Jesus, even though it's un their fear is understandable, Jesus still speaks to them and say, why were you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Didn't you believe that I was for you, working and exercising my sovereign power? even when it looks to you like I'm doing nothing? And so maybe, rather than just trying to say, well, it's understandable, maybe we should just humble ourselves and hear Jesus' rebuke and call sin for what it is. It's unbelief. Call fear for what it is. It's unbelief. Fear is focusing on our problems more than focusing on Christ. Fear comes from looking to human-grade solutions in the midst of a divine-grade problem. Fear comes from believing the lie that your problem is greater than your Christ. Fear is unbelief. And though fear in many cases seems very understandable to us, Jesus is, is saying, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Don't you believe me? Don't you trust me? And he proves it by what? By calming the storm with a word. And so what we need to do is what? To remember that the same Jesus who calmed the storm with a word is the same Jesus who's on his throne right now. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. Despite their little faith, Jesus spoke a word. And calm the storm. Water molecules obey Jesus Christ. Air molecules obey Jesus Christ. The physical laws that govern meteorological phenomena obey Jesus Christ. The sea recognizes the voice of her maker and bows the knee to him. The winds hush their howling at the whisper of their master's voice. As someone once said, there's not a single rogue molecule in the universe. Even if Jesus was asleep at this very moment, he's still upholding the universe by the word of his power. So we don't have to be afraid. So number one is that Jesus reigns over nature. And number two is that Jesus reigns over demons. 
Jesus reigns over demons. Verse 28 says, When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs and uh, drowned. Uh, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So what we see here in this passage, what Matthew wants us to understand, is that Jesus reigns over demons. He reigns over the spiritual forces of evil in the world. Uh, he goes over to the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and there's two demon-possessed men, and they're possessed um, by not just a few, but uh, another gospel says the legion, a legion of demons. And get this, the behavior of these men is so fierce that what? That everybody else was afraid, was afraid of them, right? No, nobody wanted to go that way because they didn't want to have to deal with these two men who... who Showed great ferocity and great physical strength. Okay? And so there's these two men that's possessed by a legion of demons that nobody wants to mess with because they're so fierce they're afraid of them. Jesus gets off the boat, steps on the ground, and then what happens? The two demon-possessed men that everyone else is afraid of runs to him, gets on their knees, and they're afraid of Jesus. See that? They were afraid of Jesus. You know, a striking thing about this world, the world that we live in is this, is that the demons tremble at Jesus. And yet how many men are there in this world who think nothing of him? The demons are smarter than many people because at least they're afraid of Jesus. The demons, and this is a common theme throughout many of the Gospels, is that the demons actually seem to have a better grasp of who Jesus is than most of the people. <clears throat> uh, in, in fact here, uh, we can learn a lot from how the demons respond to Jesus in this story. First, it says, they come up to him and they say, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? You see how they address him? They address him as the Son of God. That, that's, that's a lot more... That, that's a much better grasp of Jesus than almost any other person up to this point in the book of Matthew has of him. They know who Jesus is. They recognize his authority. They know that he is the Son of God. This is the third time in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. You know who referred to him as the Son of God the first two times? The devil. The devil. Remember, in the temptation, he said, if you are the Son of God. So, so far in the book of Matthew, only three times has Jesus been referred to as the Son of God, and it has all been by the devil or demons. Because they know something, even though most people don't. And in that story of the, of, of the 
the temptation of the devil, for instance, it's interesting because he challenged Jesus. He said, Jesus, if you are the son of God, then do this. If you are the son of God, do that. And in kind of the irony of it, and that shows the whole mystery of Jesus, is that it is, it is precisely if he would have used his power in the wrong way, like, G that, like the devil was tempting him to, that he would have proved himself not to be the son of God. And it's actually in refusing the temptation of the devil, even though the devil was tempting him with his deity. It was precisely in refusing the temptations of the devil that he proved himself to be the son of God. What else does this son of God, what else can we learn from the demon's response to Jesus? Well, they ask Jesus, they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Think about that for a second. What does that mean? What does it mean about what Jesus is going to do one day to the demons? They're going to get what's coming to them. What does that mean about Jesus? It means that Jesus is the one who is appointed by God to meet out the ultimate justice in the universe. Not just among men, but even among angels and demons. This is who Jesus is. And that's why they're afraid of him. And if we understood who Jesus was, if we didn't believe and trust in him, then at least we'd be afraid of him. If we had any grasp of who he is. The one whom God has appointed to judge the earth. The one who will ultimately punish fallen angels for their rebellion. How much more will he punish rebellious men? It is he who will ride down on his white horse with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. It is he who is going to open that scroll on the last day to sit on his throne and open the books and pronounce his just sentence on the sinner, the saint, the angel, and the demon. Demons tremble at his presence, and the Bible says every enemy will be placed under his feet. This is Jesus. This is our King. This is our Savior. And what we learn from this is we're fools if we think that the only thing that's going on in this world at this present moment is just ideologies and politics. Don't you know that there are demonic forces at play? Think about this. When Paul was in prison uh, in the book of Ephesians, and he was, he was what? Being treated wrongly by an unjust government. Uh, it seems, in fact, that Paul had opposition just about everywhere he went. Opposition from the Greeks, opposition from the Romans, opposition from the Jews, and even opposition from other, uh, other believers who, are, who at, at different points in his ministry would uh, abandon him and his ministry. And yet, what does Paul have to say in the midst of all these struggles that he faces? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, but put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, there's greater forces. There's infinitely greater forces at play than left versus right, 
conservative versus liberal, Republican versus Democrat, or whatever. And if that's the primary lens through which you're looking at the world, if that's the, if that's the primary lens through which your Facebook feed tells me that you're looking at this world, then you're missing the whole point. There is eternity at stake. And, the, and let me tell you something. The devil doesn't care if you ignore God by being a liberal or being a conservative. The devil doesn't care if you ignore God by voting for Trump or voting for Biden. He doesn't care which way you go to hell. As long as you don't put Jesus first in your life. As long as you don't bow the knee to Jesus, he doesn't care who else you bow the knee to. There are greater forces at play, and we must wake up. And I'm afraid that there are segments, even within the church, who are just being played like a fiddle. Devil's done gone down to Georgia. And he's playing people like a fiddle. There's something greater at play. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his kingdom is the only kingdom that's going to last. There are spiritual forces at play that we cannot ignore. And so what we need is not, you know, I, I, pr I pray for, for better politicians. But they're not going to solve the problem. What we need is Christ. We need his gospel. We need the kingdom of God to come. And that doesn't happen through politics. It happens through his people. Being faithful and obedient and focused on him. So we see that Jesus reigns over nature. Number two, Jesus reigns over demons. And finally, number three, Jesus reigns over sin. Jesus reigns over sin. Verse Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So finally, and probably most importantly, we see here that Jesus reigns over sin. Jesus reigns over sin. We read the story of this man being brought on a stretcher, and we think that this story is really just another healing story. But I would suggest that Matthew's main point is actually much greater than that. It's not the healing that's really the focus, but it's the, <laughs> it's the controversy around the healing. In verse 2, it says that when he saw their faith, which, by the way, just notice that. It, it, it's plural. When, when he saw their faith, not just his faith, the paralyzed man's faith, but when he saw their faith, the, his faith and the friend's faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, of course, we can't ultimately believe for someone in a saving sense. How profoundly true is it that the genuineness and the authenticity and the sincerity of our faith 
is what God so often uses to do what? To spark faith in the hearts of other people. And we don't, we don't know, but perhaps maybe this paralyzed man was a little bit skeptical about this at first, not wanting to go through all the trouble of having to be picked up by his friends and carried through a crowd. I mean, that'd probably be a little embarrassing. But maybe, we, again, we don't know, but maybe his friends were just so earnest with him and said, no, come on, he can do it. We've seen him. We've seen him do it. We, we have to take you to him. We want to take you to him. And maybe at the, maybe at the urging of his friends, the paralyzed man saying, okay, if you say... If you say he's done all that he, he has, then, then maybe he can heal me, and I will go with you. And their faith helped spur his faith in Jesus. And they, and they get him to Jesus. And by the way, isn't, shouldn't that exactly what we'd be doing with our lost friends and family members? Hey, I'm telling you, friend, Jesus can do it. He can make a difference in your life. Please come. I'll take you. We can go to him right now. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ, be fishers of men. They bring their friend to Jesus. They do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And when he gets there, he sees Jesus. And here is a man. And again, just put yourself in a first century Jewish mindset. I mean, you can see Jesus. And what? He looks like any other any other Jewish fellow, right? In fact, if we if we take uh, Isaiah 53, it says, you know, if we take it literally, he, he, it says there that he, he, he really wasn't much to look at. Just a normal looking dude. And yet, this, the guy comes and, everyone, every, you know, there's crowds all around. And you have this average Jewish looking man. And he looks this other guy in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone goes, <gasps> what in the world just happened? It's amazing. It's astounding. And we know it so. And the scribe knew it too. We know inherently, and the scribes knew it, that only God can forgive sins. Why? <laughs> because Really, only the one that you sin against has the authority to forgive, right? If somebody slaps me across the face and my wife comes up and says, I forgive you, <laughs> you'd say, they need counseling. <laughs> you know, something's not right. It's the one whom, who is sinned against who has to forgive. And ultimately, the Bible's quite clear about this. Ultimately, every sin is against God. Even when you sin against somebody else, another person, guess what? That person is made in the image of God. So to sin against another person is to sin against the image of God. You're sinning against God. All sin is against God. And we all know that to be intuitively true. <laughs> and this man comes up to Jesus, and Jesus looks him in the eye and says, I forgive you. I forgive you. The scribes knew exactly what was happening. He said, this man said, they said, this man is blaspheming. Because they knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying what? I'm God. I have the authority on earth to administer what is a uniquely divine prerogative. And when he goes, uh, 
he goes to heal the paralytic, he says this, he says, the son of, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He wants them to know that. You see, the Son of Man, uh, that's Jesus' favorite self-reference. That's his favorite description of himself. And it's kind of mysterious, and, and I would argue that that's on, that's on purpose. Uh, it's a biblical phrase. Some of the prophets use them. It's an Old Testament phrase. Some of the prophets used it concerning themselves. Um, but really, uh, in Hebrew, it's it's ben uh, adam, right? It, it literally... It's a Hebrew idiom that really just means a, a human being, a, a human being. And yet there's also uh, an important reference to a son of man in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, where Daniel has the vision. And he says that he saw a vision of one like a son of man descending on the clouds of heaven. And so the title itself is very mysterious. And, and, but it, it, tend, it tends to emphasize Jesus's humanity. And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. And then he tells the man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Jesus, Jesus knew their evil thoughts. He said, which is easier? Say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And to me, it, uh, you know, different. there's different takes on it. But it seems to me the easiest reading is just to say that what Jesus is acknowledging is he's acknowledging that his healing power proves his forgiving power. We can see healings take place, even though we can't see the forgiveness of sins taking place, even though one is far greater than the other. Jesus said it's better to go into the kingdom of heaven blind or lame than to go into hell with two hands and two eyes. One is certainly greater than the other. Forgiving, forgiving, forgiveness of sins is far greater than being physically healed. The difference is we can see one and not the other. And Jesus says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to heal so that you know that I can also forgive sins. And when the people saw this, Matthew says, they glorified God who had given such authority to man. That means God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ, to do what? To reign over our sin. Jesus reigns over our sin. Jesus has the authority from God to forgive us of our sin. Won't you come to him? Won't you come to him at any cost? Won't you do whatever it takes to get to Jesus, who alone has the authority on earth to forgive sins? Would you get your friends to tear out a roof if that was that's what it took to get you to Jesus? And I want to say this morning as we close. Jesus, because Jesus now reigns from heaven, because he died to pay the penalty for our sins so that he could forgive us of our sins, because he rose again, proving that he had forgiving sins. Therefore, the punishment for sin no longer applies to those whose sins are forgiven. That means we won't ultimately die, but we'll be raised from the dead like he is. And because he ascended into heaven, and because he sits on his throne, and because he reigns from heaven, and has poured out his spirit, and, and to this day pours out his spirit on all who calls on him, then guess what? It's actually easier for you now 
than it was for the paralytic. Because you don't have to get your friends to dig through a roof to get you to Jesus. You can, wherever you are, right this moment, in your heart, just call on him and he will hear you. And say, Jesus, I want you to do for me what you did for that man. Forgive me of my sin. And the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, Jesus can calm a storm with a word. The demons come running to Jesus on their knees, begging for mercy. And he has all that authority and much more besides. He can forgive your sins if you'll come to him. And so as we close, that's the invitation that I want to extend. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's not like the people of this world who's just grasping for power. Jesus exercised all the authority in heaven and on earth to do what? To save people from their sin. He's for you if you will come and acknowledge your need for him. And if you do that this morning or, or if that's a decision you want to make and you want to talk to somebody... I urge you and plead you, please contact somebody you know. You can contact me if you're watching online. You can contact me on Facebook. I can get with you. Uh, any faithful Bible-believing church you can get connected with. We can walk this walk of faith together and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.